So this morning, as you know, probably that Lynn and I are also missionaries. We go to Rwanda for half the year. We leave the 16th of October. I told you Doug and Jan are missionaries. And this morning, when we finish, you're going to realize something else. What are you going to realize, Liz? You're all missionaries. Amen. And I want you to understand that. And the Lord wants you to understand that. This missionary business is not exclusive to people going to Mexico in the wintertime. <laughs> or Rwanda in the wintertime. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so it's just good to be here. Really, really good. Praying for our grandkids. Lynn spent a week with the grandkids and... Wouldn't it be something if when our kids, grandkids went to school, if their school teacher was Jesus? Wouldn't that be something? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his very, very best for us. And it cost him his life. Matthew chapter 28. This is a famous missionary pastor. Did you know the term missionary didn't start until about 200 years ago? That the concept of missionary or missions is relatively new. Strange, right? When you think of it. Matthew, it says, uh, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, Now, this is after Jesus had been crucified, had died, and he rose again, and he's about to leave. And so here the disciples are with him, and he says to them, all authority has, has been given me, to me in heaven and on earth. Now when somebody gets killed and has the authority to rise up again, having overcome death, and he says to you, I've got all the authority, okay? All of it. We want to listen to him. Speaking of authority, what if when you're speeding and the police officer pulls you over, what if it's Jesus? Well, I don't think he forgives you. I don't think so. He does not have the authority there to forgive you. What if it's Jesus? Just a thought. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, your love is so incredible and so amazing. Help us this morning to see who you are and who we are. Help me, Jesus. 
Help me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This word, go and make disciples, it's an imperative. All you English geeky people, I'm not an English geeky person. <laughs> but the English geeky people tell me that the go is an imperative. And there's some people here who know Greek as well, i.e. not mentioning any names, but <laughs> look at said party and whistle. Elmer. <laughs> uh, it's an imperative. It means it's a direct, absolute command. Jesus is saying directly, absolutely, go and make disciples. And we've translated into it, oh, you've been called, have you? I haven't been called. Does Jesus say, go and if the feeling arises and you think that you might be pleased with the idea? No. It's an imperative, a direct command to everybody. To do what? To do what, Lynn? Make disciples. Greg, what are you supposed to do? Make disciples. disciples. What's Jesus' plan? Make disciples. Let's imagine for a minute that Calvary Chapel was the only place on the planet where there's Christians. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, Kevin. Yeah, we do. Imagine we're the only place on the planet that is Christian. Now what are you going to do? Hmm? What's that? Take a stand. Take a stand. Yeah, against the gates of hell. But what are we going to do? And Jesus says to you and us, go make disciples. And he says, and we're the only Christians on the planet. Got it? And he says, I'm going to hold you to account. I'm going to invest my life in you. I'm going to die for you. And I'm going to give you all authority and all power in heaven to do what it is I want you to do. Got it? Here's the assignment. And he says, my plan is you. And we look around and say, you've got to come up with another plan. This is just too ridiculous. So here's the question that the Lord or somebody may have asked Rob. Rob, if you had a choice of getting 1,000 new church members at Calvary Chapel every year for 30 years... Would you like that? Would you guys like that? No. <laughs> Micah's with us. Yeah, he knows a trick question. He knows a trick question when he sees one. 1,000 new members every year for 30 years. We'd have a church of 30,000 people. Are you impressed yet? 
Okay, but wait a minute. What if somebody asks Rob the question, you can have 1,000 new ones every year, or you can have one. Which one do you want? If you have one, and you can make him a disciple... you know what happens in 30 years? Because a disciple, by definition, goes and makes another disciple. So let's just do the math here. Rob, you and me. If God said to me some time ago, Dave, this is my plan. I want you to train and equip a disciple. Now let's imagine that's you. Let's imagine it. Let's imagine then that the second year I did it again and you also did it. Okay. Greg. Because I got another one, right? What? Yeah. Okay, Micah doesn't work for this case, for example. Sorry, sorry, Micah. You can come up in a bit, but not yet. So you got to go find somebody that has been your disciple. In real life? In real life. Oh. <laughs> I have been discipling my kids. I know you have. That's a good thing. Uh, or have make pretend somebody, okay? Pretend somebody. Pretend somebody. you come up here. All right. So Jesus says, "This is my plan." And so here we are, two years in, and there's four of us. Okay, now go make disciples. Everybody each get another one. Tony? Okay, we're four years in. Looking pretty sad because we could have had 4,000 people by now. Somebody here may or may not have gone to a, a, a pastor's meeting in this city and had the pastors ask him, what's your plan? And he may or may not have said, my plan is to find one. And to make a disciple. And he may or may not have been laughed in his face. And ten years later he may have been there again. And he might have said the same thing. And he may or may not have been laughed in his face again. We're four years in. Are you with me? Yes. I think it's time to get another disciple. I think so too. Elmer. How many years are we in? Five. We could have 5,000 by now. What are you guys doing? Bunch of losers? What's that? 
discipleship here or what? No, no, we have a woman. Okay, everybody get another one. Go for it, go for it. Now, six years in, are we having fun yet? Now it's starting to heat up, isn't it? Thank you. Come on, Dave. (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's do it. Okay. Two more years. Two more. (laughs) Okay, everybody, go out and find another one and bring them up here. Simeon, Reuben, bring him up here. We got to prove the point. Dave. We got to prove our point. Yeah, this is going to work. This is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to bring up another one. The church goes up here. That's okay. You got to have them up here. <laughs> Where's Dave? Here. Just next time, if you get pointed at, they stand up. Okay. <laughs> now you notice something? It's getting pretty rowdy up here, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I think we have about as many up here as we have down here. No? This is Jesus' plan. Pretty crazy. Okay, you can sit down. Do one more time. Somebody, always somebody pushing it. You know. I know this works. You know this works. You can bring up the next slide. Somebody may have done the math for you. You see, after 10 years, at one per year, you'd have 10,000 members, and one disciple year, you'd have only 512 after 10 years. 
You could have had 10,000. After 20 years, you could have 20,000, or you'd have 1,056,576. After 20 years. Now, if you have 30 years, you could have a church of 30,000. How impressive would that be? Or you could have 1,081,933,824. Real disciples. Is that something? When Jesus says, go and make disciples, this was his plan. I mean, today we sit here in 2017 and we can figure that in 30 years, this small group could do the job. What's the problem? We may have been going, but we haven't been making disciples. We have been in the mission field long enough to know that there's many missionaries who go and very, very few who make disciples. When God asked, asked us to go to Rwanda, I says, what in the world are we going to do in Rwanda? White people in the flat prairies, born in where there's snow, with a country of hills and mountains and all black people, and... Officially, their language is English, but people haven't been informed yet, so they still speak Kenyanwanda. What is that? So people ask, what are you going to do when you go to, go to, to Rwanda? And I asked the Lord that. We asked the Lord, what are you going to do when you go to Rwanda? And my wife here, what does she like to do? Go for coffee. Go for breakfast. And me, I'm the associate pastor. My job is to drink coffee. You know. And meet one at a time. It's my job. Make disciples. And if you make disciples, we make disciples. Look what happens. Go. It's an imperative, a direct command. This is always in play at all times, in all situations, for each and every one of us. Imagine for a minute that there's a guy driving a truck on the highway. What if it's Jesus driving the truck? Lynn and I have had the privilege of being in different countries and different places and we were in Germany or France or someplace where they have this cathedral that took them more than a hundred years to build. And I visited some cathedrals and palaces around Europe. Lynn usually sits and drinks coffee while I go visit. She says, how many cathedrals can you look at? 
come on, they're all different. And, and I walked into this one. Most of them are tourist attractions now. And I walked into this one, and as I walked in, my heart just broke. As I'm looking around, people are whispering and talking quietly because they're in the house of the Lord, you know. You've got to talk, whisper. And I asked the Lord, what's with this? The money that's gone into these buildings is just insane. And then he says to me, no, it's not. And he said, I built this. This building was built by somebody whose heart I captured. And what happens when God captures a designer's heart? They design buildings for the glory of God. And what happens when God captures a builder's heart? He builds buildings for the glory of God. And I said, so this is for your glory? And he says, yes. He says, this building was built to sing in. Sing in. Oh, it's so quiet. Peaceful. I'm sitting as a proper tourist close to the front of the sanctuary to sing in. He says, yeah. I'm going, to sing in? He says, yeah. Why don't you try it? (laughs) There's tourists all around. Yeah. What if Jesus was a tourist? So I sat there at the chapel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And the building just woke up. That saved a wretch like me. And I stopped and it it kept singing. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. The building just sang. It sang. It was like it was crying and saying, So long since somebody has worshipped the Lord in here. What if Jesus was a tourist? Okay, but let's be reasonable. Let's not get all fanatical. Come on. You're going over the deep end here. You can see that you can see it, right? Right over the deep end. Well, Romans chapter twelve tells us what is reasonable. Rule twelve verse one I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In Rwanda, so often, you know, so often everything comes about money. Here too, it's money, there, money, money, everything is about money. How are you going to afford this? How are you going to pay for things? And Lynn and I go through that struggle. How are we going to, how is this going to work? My wife may or may not have asked me that a few times. <laughs> not wanting to uncover her. 
show me how this is going to work. I heard someplace that if you could figure it out, then you're not moving in faith. So we move in faith. (laughs) If you can figure out how it works, then you haven't got faith because faith says you can't figure out how it works. But you know the one who's called you. You know the one who's redeemed you. You know him. And when you know him, you must tell people. So in Rwanda, I'll tell you in a minute about some of those things. But first, the Holy Spirit said to us before we left, he says, Dave, I I am in you. And that's what I want there. He says, you're going to walk in a room and not say anything and not do anything, but I want you to watch. He said, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to watch what happens when you walk in the room. Don't say anything, don't do anything. Just walk in. And we walked into some pretty dark rooms. Pretty heavy. And as we walk in and look around, we start seeing something. Hope. Haven't said anything. Haven't done anything. And you can see it in the faces. It's hope. And the Lord says, you see this? Jesus just walked in the room. When Jesus walks in the room, hope walks in the room. Three years ago, the Rwandans gave Lynn and me each our own Rwandan name. Simeon, what's my name? Birinjiro. I love that name. When we say that in Rwanda, that that's the name they've given us, they cheer and clap. What does it mean, Simeon? That means hope. It's not about us. It's who we bring into the room. With us. Do you understand that? They say hope just walked into the room. It's amazing. Being here in Calvary Chapel, then uh, a few years ago, a black man, so I can say that, black man, because the blacks actually don't have a problem with that. <laughs> it's the white ones that do. <laughs> in Rwanda, we were in a room and somebody was trying to point somebody out. He said, well, who is this person? Which one? He said, well, you know, the black one. We mean the black one. We're the only white people here. Well, no, no, there's some that are clearly black and others are chocolate and others are... There's just different shades, right? This, the black one. Oh, the black one. A black man walked in here at Calvary Chapel. Jean-Paul Seneza. And what did Calvary Chapel do with Jean-Paul Seneza? It wasn't just me. What did Calvary Chapel do? We discipled him. One guy. He was impacted, dramatically changed. He went back to Rwanda and the people there said, you're so completely different now. You look like Jesus. Before you looked like a lot of things, but not like Jesus. But now you look like Jesus. Who did you meet? I want to meet them. And then my wife and I went. 
And we went in and they said, God has put something into you that we want. What is in us that people want and need? Jesus. It's that simple. So we did what we did, and then he says, well, you must come back more. But the culture there meant that we had to pay for everything. So we said to them, well, you know, much as you don't believe it, we're actually not made of money. But I know you think we are. So we said to them, here's the deal. We're going to come back for two weeks and bring with us 10,000 U.S. dollars. Or we'll come back for six months and, and give you no money. Which one do you want? Us? Or our money? He says, can't we have both? <laughs> we says, no, because as soon as it becomes about the money, it's all about the money. You decide. So this is what God has put you into you, money can't buy. What is it that money can't buy that is available freely? The Lord Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit. You understand me? What if when you go book your travel ticket, Jesus is selling you the ticket? What if when you go on the bus, Jesus is driving the bus? What if the farmer, Jesus is the farmer on the field? What if when you go to the bank, Jesus is the banker? What if all you teachers are going back to school, Jesus is your student? What's it like now? What if your spouse is Jesus? You see, what I'm describing to you is God's plan. And Jesus says, that's why I put my spirit into you so that Jesus will be there. So that when I, when I go get my car fixed, I got Jesus working on my car. Pretty wild, huh? How many missionaries do we have? All of us. See, when we've been impacted by the gospel, we want to do something. That's why people build cathedrals and crazy things. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples are asking Jesus, okay, when are you going to build a kingdom? Because our thinking always reverts back to the fleshly, earthly things here. Always. Did with the disciples. They lived with them and walked with them for three years. And then as he's about to die, he's telling them he's going to get crucified. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And they're asking Jesus, okay, like when you're gone, who are you going to promote to number one? So I get that. I get that confusion. And Jesus wants us to get why we're here. So how do we do this? How do we reach the gospel? Well, in, in Zechariah 4, verse 6, the word to Zerubbabel is this. Not by might and not by power, not by my, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So uh, the secret to 
I'll give you a culinary secret. The secret to reaching the world with the gospel is the same secret to how do you eat an elephant. One bite at a time. Jean-Paul was here and he was so profoundly impacted he went back and he says, Dave, you've got to bring everything that is in me into Rwanda and bring it to the church and bring it to the nation. This is so incredible. I says, that's the plan. He says, yeah, what's your plan? Can you show me your plan? I says, yeah, let's get together. I'll tell you my plan. So Jean-Paul came over. I made him a cup of tea. Simeon, come here. Because Simeon's black, I'm going to use him. He's our, Simeon is our translator in Rwanda. We've worked together for four years. He's here with us for six months and he'll be going back with us in October. Amen? Amen. He's <laughs> a man of integrity. Gift of languages. Learning Greek now. He only speaks five so far. So it's time for some more. Five, yes? That means yes. <laughs> so we had tea. I said, Jean-Paul... This is my plan to bring all this to all of Rwanda. You. We always look like this. <laughs> you believe I said that, don't you? He <laughs> did. Thank you. And he says to me, You're kidding me. I said, Nope, that's the plan. And he went back and he told me, I got good news. I got like 20, 30 guys I'm discipling. I said, ah, I got bad news. What's that? He said, you haven't got anybody. You haven't got anybody. If I could be in a stadium, preaching at a stadium with 15 or 20,000 people, wouldn't that be great and amazing? I'd rather have one disciple. Stadium stuff comes and goes. It's finished. Give me a disciple. As we meet with the leaders in Rwanda and we have been assigned the task of training 4,000 pastors in a church of 2 million, and they say, what's your plan? I say, oh, I have a plan. You are my plan. And they say, me? Yeah. When are we going to meet? You and me. Just you and me. We've got to bring everybody. We've got to have a program and budget. No, 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 no. It's okay. I'll buy the coffee. When are we going to meet? Just you and me. You see how simple that is? We have a gentleman here. Uh, Linda, is she here today? No? David and Linda Adrian. He usually sits somewhere around there and you maybe know David Adrian. He can't walk very good. and His speech isn't very clear. He's got this disease of shrinking brain thing. And, and Can he make disciples? Yeah, he can. And he does. What if you're a woman? 
Can a woman make disciples? Amen. What if you're a child? Micah, your turn. Come. Trust me. (laughs) He says, will you come with me, right? You see the picture? Micah can disciple somebody. And he says to his daddy, Daddy, will you come with me? Isn't that a beautiful picture? He's not too young. Because Micah has contacts with kids that daddy doesn't, and I don't. But he does. So what if on the playground, your playmates are Jesus? Thanks. Luke chapter 3, verse 14. There's a soldier who who meets Jesus and he goes, "Ah, What do I do now? Well, of course, he should quit his soldiering and he should go to Bible school and then seminary and then uh, on a short-term missions trips and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. What does a soldier do when he meets Jesus? And Jesus says to him, be a good soldier. Don't extort money from anybody by threats or false accusation and be content with what you're paid. So when a soldier comes to Jesus, now the soldier is Jesus. You see that? That's his plan. Don't quit being a soldier. Come on. Jesus saved you as a soldier. He wants a soldier to be Jesus. Your soldiering is different when Jesus does the soldiering. The peacekeeping envoy that goes into these countries is completely different when it's Jesus. There's no looting and pillaging from the peacekeeping soldiers. And it happens. Because Jesus doesn't do that. Soldiering is different. Well, let's go to the Old Testament. Moses. Moses says, I, I want to, I want to, use, God says, I want to use you to bring the children of Israel. He says, I, I can't. I, what, what about God? I, I can't. And God says, what do you have in your hand? What does he say? A stick. And Moses' hand, it was a stick. God says, give it to me. Gave it to him. It became something else, didn't it? God doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. Very often, people with means, people will come to them and say, oh, I know what you should do with your money. (laughs) I have some friends that are wealthy, and I've asked them this question. Do people come and tell you what it is you should do with your money? He's all the time. Because people in Rwanda think that Lynn and I are very, very, very wealthy. We are, of course, because we're white. (laughs) And they keep telling us what we should do with our money. And ask them the question, what do you do with your money? Oh, I don't have any money. Sure you have money. Everybody's got money. What do you do with it? Do you give it to the Lord? Well, if I had all your money, I'd give it to the Lord. 
Would you really? I once uh, I met a man who was in a church someplace, and he said that they had a prophetic word at the church. God was going to give him six new millionaires this year. I says, wow, that's a small church. That's impressive. I says, and why is God going to give you six new millionaires? What are you going to do? He says, oh, we're going to do missions thing. We're going to help the poor and plant churches and do all this stuff. It's all very good. I said, what are you doing now? Nothing. So I got news for you. There's nothing with nothing or there's nothing with six million. It's still nothing. You can't give what you don't have. And what you do with what you have will determine what you will do with what you get. You got that? And God will choose if you're going to be meeting with one person for coffee, if you're going to preach in front of 200 people, or if you're going to be in a stadium with 20,000, or in a country with 2 million. God will choose. But the greatest impact comes from the one. And we must never forget that. Give me the one. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Jesus is preaching on the side of the mountain. There's thousands there. Jesus did a lot of time one-on-one, but he did with the thousands too. And there's thousands there, and everybody says, we got no food, we got nothing, nothing, nothing. They're looking at their nothingness instead of at Jesus. And a young boy comes along whose mom made him some light lunch for, for dinner. What his mom didn't know is that she's making light, light lunch for thousands and thousands of people. Why? Because Jesus asked, does anybody have anything? And, and I don't know if nobody else, I can't imagine that in all that crowd, nobody else had any food there. I can't imagine that. But we know one who brought forward what he had. And the one who brings forward what he has, something happens. He could have said, well, that guy there, he's got a whole family, he's got all kinds of food for the family. Uh, why don't you bring yours? No. What do you have? Jesus doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. Remember Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Elkanah had two wives. The Bible allows that. It didn't endorse it to say it's the right thing. Whatever. There's God's grace. Because it's not my plan, but God's grace was there. He had two wives. The one wife had kids like crazy, and the other one didn't have any. The problem was Elkanah liked the wife that didn't have kids more than the other one. He loved her. She couldn't give him any kids. She said, ah. And she'd get on his case. Why don't you give me kids? Come on. He says, look, I love you. I love you more than everybody, anything. Isn't that enough? She says, I want to I have kids. So she prays and God gives her a son. And then God says, she promises God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Anybody ever made that promise? <laughs> How quickly we forget once we get what it is we promised we would give if we only got it. I will give it back to you. She has a son, his name is Samuel. And as a young boy, she brings him to the temple and gives him away. And visits him once a year. Gives him away. She couldn't give all those other children that weren't hers. She had only one. She gave him. 1 Kings 17, 7 to 16. 
uh, Elijah's been praying for provision. He says, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm starving. And God says, I got a plan for you. I'm going to take care of you. So he sends her to a widow who's got a son who's got only enough food for one meal for the two of them. Then they're going to die. Isn't God got a great sense of humor? And he goes and she says, hi there. What's for lunch? She says, well, my son and I were going to have one meal. Then we're going to sit down and die. Because everything's finished, finished, finished. We have no hope. He says, very good then. Can you cook that meal up and give it to me? What an insensitive guy is that? He should have got a fundraising project to try and raise money for her. She cooks up the meal and gives it to him. And they're fed. They're taken care of for the rest of their lives, I would believe. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 8, the Apostle Paul visits a church called the Macedonian church and he's starting to tell them different things that are happening in the gospel. And these Macedonians are poor. The crops have been bad, everything's failing. They're starving. They, we would say they have nothing. And Paul finishes preaching and then they take an offering and they come and give them a pile of money. And Paul says, you can't do this, guys. You can't do this. You need to take... And they said, no, no, we got more. We got stuff we can sell. We can give more. Quite fanatical, isn't it? Mark chapter 12, verse 41 to 44. Jesus goes into the temple and he sits down where the offering is given. He sits down to watch and observe who's giving what. He sees everything, but he wants us to know he sees things. Matthew chapter 25, verse 26. We have the the story of the talents. How many talents were given? And the one who did not invest his talent for the Lord. What did the Lord say he was? Wicked. And slothful. You get that, folks? When God has invested something into us, and we hang on to it, he says, you're wicked and slothful. Yike. Anybody gives a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, his reward will be remembered. So, here we are at Calvary Chapel. Years ago, Andrew Micklefield preached a sermon and it made a problem. And the sermon was called Goodbye Cozy Calvary. Remember that, anybody? See that? Goodbye, Cozy Calvary. And he stood over here and I stood beside him and we said to the congregation, we have given ourselves to the Lord. Anything he wants to do with us, anywhere, anyhow, anytime, we're his. And we said to everybody, be careful. Am I right, Greg? This is not a safe place, folks. This is a dangerous place to be right here. But I always say, if you're not living on the edge, taking up too much room. (laughs) Oh, I want to live till the day I died. I thought David went and slew the giant. Here's something interesting. I don't find anywhere where God told him to do it. I don't see anywhere where God told him to do it. See, David had a relationship with God. He's walking and has this relationship with him. And he sees this thing that's so bad and so wrong. And he says, 
He's challenging the God who lives in me. This God, he is challenging. I don't think so. He didn't have a long prayer meeting, fasting and praying. What should we do? No, no, no. And Goliath was nine meters, three meters tall. Like his, his shoulder would have been a little past this. His head would be up here by the ceiling. That's Goliath. David was a little redhead. If you're a redhead, that's for free. <laughs> the point is this. Either we're missionaries or we're not. Next slide, please. That's the Jean-Paul I was talking about. And every time we go and meet with him and his care is, what about the kids? Who's going to do something for the kids? What are we going to do with the kids? Can somebody help with the kids? By God's grace, for some reason... Some people may have run into the founder of Ambassadors Football and may have invited him to Rwanda, and it may have started. And John Paul and a friend went to Cleveland to train for six weeks on using football for the gospel. And he goes back to his home village, and he says, I've got to test this out to see if it works. And he walks onto the football pitch with his little girl and his football, and they have instantly more than 20 kids there. And he says to him, I'm going to come back tomorrow. Tomorrow he comes back and they have over a hundred. What do they want to learn? They want to learn about football. Jean-Paul says, I'll teach you about Jesus. And he says, will you teach us football? He says, yep, okay, we'll learn about Jesus. We have been praying that God will use that church for missions work in Rwanda and around the nation. They have no plan for the children in the country. By, there are 2 million members in the church. That's not counting the children. 4,200 chapels. What would happen if every chapel had a football club? 4,200 football clubs. And what if the plan was to teach them about Jesus? Overnight. You saw that graph that I showed you now. It spikes up at the end. Overnight. So here's John Paul teaching the kids about Jesus, using football. People in the neighborhood find out about it. Government officials find out about it. Police find out about it. The school finds out about it. They come to John Paul. They say, John Paul, we want to send all the children to you. All of them. Is the door open? Is the field white unto the harvest? All of them. This is part of us. John Paul is Calvary Chapel. God will decide where to send you. Are you going to be faithful? If you're not faithful here, you won't be faithful there. He's praying now. In November, we're going to have a training session for, to train up the, the leaders of this thing. And 
He's praying. He says, Dave, I need a hundred coaches. Surely there's a hundred coaches. So we want you all to pray. In November, a hundred coaches. Can you imagine? 4,200 teams within two years. Learning about Jesus and football. This is Calvary Chapel. Two weeks later, we have a meeting with the leaders. We have the international leaders from our international family of churches coming, Lord willing, for a conference with all the, with all the leaders in, church leaders in Rwanda. We need prayer. The enemy is not happy. And by the way, if you think this is a good idea and you're in, I want you to know it'll cost you everything. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Next slide. He sent this note with this picture. Some of you saw it on Facebook. Meet this kid, met this kid today. He quitted the school in grade six to give room for his other siblings to go to school. Today I prayed with him, and we trust in God that on Monday he will go back to school. Just five minutes to talk with a kid. He opens up and shares with you his deepest struggle. I hope this is why Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Dave and Edith go there and they spend time with John Paul and walk around the village. How many people came to the Lord when you were there? What's that? Didn't count. Many, 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 many. This is God's plan. And you're all in it, and part of it, whether you like it or not. Last slide. What do you have? God's not going to ask you to give something you don't have. It's going to hurt. It'll cost you everything once you buy in. And your life will be so extremely exciting you wouldn't dream of jumping out of an airplane that's perfectly healthy.
go skydiving. Why would you go skydiving? I get an adrenaline rush for you. What has God put into you? And what are you doing with what he's put into you? Doug and Jan are missionaries. They were missionaries in Winnipeg before they went to Mexico. Right? What were you doing in Winnipeg? Meeting with people? Marriage counseling? Teaching? What are you doing in Mexico? Meeting with people? Marriage counseling? Teaching people? Not rocket science, is it? What could we possibly do? Maybe you're a sound mixer guy. In Rwanda, they have, we need help sound mixing. Oh, we have a sound mixer guy. Help made a huge difference. When I asked him, I says, can you go? Randy Brown. He said, I'm not a missionary guy. What are you talking about? Are you a sound guy? He says, yes. Do you have Jesus? Yes. Okay. You're welcome. He came. Huge impact. Simeon? Made a big difference, didn't it? Here he's a sound mixer guy. But he had a theology of sound, biblically based, and he taught it. And I went, Wow. You bring the Bible into sound? He says, well, sound was actually God's idea. So I'm asking him what he meant by it. You see that? What if Jesus was the sound mixer guy? I'm going to give it to Rob. Father, I thank you for your love and mercy. I thank you that you gave your only son. And I thank you that you tell us we can't outgive you. No matter what we give you, we will just get more and more and more and more. And Father, we as elders have given you the people in this church, in this church. I have, as the old man. And I again give you everybody. And I say, for your glory, anytime, anyhow, anywhere. Anyway, for your glory. Be with Jean Paul, TG and Amanda in Alberta, Tunji at Oronke and Brandon, Doug and Jan, Kevin Maria in Uruguay, and each one here school teachers, Sunday school teachers, housewives, plumbers, electricians, painters, truckers. Jesus, your praise will fill the earth. Amen.